For the fermentation revivalist Sandor Katz, it all started with pickles. I started noticing that the pickles that I had loved all my life um, were actually, when I would eat them and even when I would smell them, and even right now as I'm just talking about them, um, you know, they would make my salivary glands under my tongue squirt um, out saliva. So, um, you know, in a very tangible way, I started recognizing that these foods would, like, get my digestive juices flowing. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Sarah Reynolds. To find Sandor Katz in Tennessee, you have to head east of Nashville. You turn off the highway, then left and right, left and right, winding deeper and deeper into Middle Tennessee. You pass through hayfields and dense forests of tall, skinny trees, and you eventually find yourself on a narrow, winding road with rough gravel, the kind that tugs at your unsuitable rental car wheels. And then you're there, an old farmhouse nestled in a glen. And here, Sandor Katz is home. Can you tell me what you're eating? <laughs> um, I was just eating a roasted turnip. <laughs> roasted and not fermented. That's true. I, I, I do not exclusively eat fermented things. I eat lots of fresh, raw things and cooked things as well as fermented things. But if you walk into his kitchen and look at his shelves and windowsills and inside his refrigerator, you might think that everything he eats is fermented. There's a jar of garlic cloves fermenting in honey, hibiscus mead, red wine, kombucha with the jellyfish-like mother settled on top of the cloudy liquid, gochujang, a fermented Korean red chili sauce, miso, lemongrass and ginger drink fermenting in a jar, crocks of sauerkraut and kimchi. This is a fun batch that's a little bit different. So one thing I like to do is do whole... So that's like basically a whole head of Napa cabbage. He pulls the fabric off the top of a clay crock and reaches his hand in to pull out a sopping wet head of fermented, fermenting cabbage. You know, it turns out that there's a lot of art to kimchi and, and, and how people do their kimchis. And you can do the same thing with sauerkraut. I mean, I love to, um, like in, you know, in Southeastern uh, uh, Europe, like former Yugoslavia lands, um, people typically don't shred the cabbages before they ferment them. They ferment whole heads of cabbages. And I sometimes do a, this hybrid thing where I bury a whole head of cabbage um, uh, under the shredded cabbage. Wow. He pulls out a small head of white cabbage from the bottom of another crock. And I usually cut the core out so that the brine can really penetrate to the center. And then you've got these whole soured cabbage leaves that you can peel off. This week, Sandor's kitchen is busier than usual. He's hosting 14 people, ferment fiends who wanted the opportunity to come and learn from this fermentation revivalist. They've pitched their tents around the yard and spent the week learning from Sandor, fermenting practically everything they can find, mostly vegetables from nearby farms. The students come from Portugal, Nebraska, Minnesota, Germany, California. And when I ask why they're here, they all say first that it's him. Some of them taught themselves how to ferment. Some learned when they were young, when they weren't as proud of the associations with this food-preserving tradition. Yeah, I learned from my grandmother who was in western Kentucky. Stephanie Haney grates ginger for the next project while she talks. 
She's one of the workshop participants. So we did a lot of pickling and um, other food preservation as a kid, which I was very embarrassed about as a kid because basically meant that I was poor. Um, and then that's changed, you know, as an adult, realizing that it's um, not necessarily just about a class issue, but just more about how are we going to preserve food for changes in environment and things like that. And also just um, that carrying on of that knowledge. So I've had like a, a relationship that has changed with um, preserving food over time, for yeah. sure. It's the last day of the week-long workshop. Sandor holds these at his home twice a year, and they harvest, chop, and ferment the surplus from his garden and from his friends' farms and gardens nearby. For this last morning together, they're making a big batch of turnip kimchi. Kimchi is traditional Korean fermented vegetables. These turnips are from a nearby farm, and there are a lot of them. The students chopped them the day before and soaked them in brine overnight. All their wilted green tops are sitting in a massive mound outside by the pickup truck that brought them here to their happy fate. I'm going to mix up the spice paste if anyone wants to come and come be part of that. So, okay, we have a mass of vegetables here. I mean, you know, I don't know, you know, we didn't weigh them or anything, but I, you know, I'll say we certainly have like 75 pounds of vegetables between these two. Um, you know, it's like, it's, 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 it's a lot of vegetables, so we don't have to be afraid of like overspicing. For this batch, the spice paste is finely chopped lemon peppers, ginger, garlic, shallots, and a water, rice flour, and chili flake mix. It's a thick batter, kind of like pancake batter. Sanders has been fermenting food for nearly 25 years. He's written books about it. He travels the world teaching and lecturing about fermentation. And here in his kitchen, he's at ease. He moves about the light-filled high ceiling space, pointing out jars and ingredients, books and crocks. His salt and pepper hair is a subtle mohawk, his worn red corduroys are slightly short at the ankle when he sits, giving a glimpse of brightly striped socks in his leather boots. He collects the biggest bowls he can find, which the students will need for mixing the kimchi paste into the turnips with their hands, coating every piece. Um, and then here, let's, let's get our shallots in there. And you know, I mean, not all kimchi necessarily has all of these spices. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of variations in, in kimchi. There's there's kimchi's that don't have any chili peppers at all. Um, you know, so 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 none of the spices specifically define kimchi. But you know, typically kimchi is um, is is spicy and has um, you know I would say that these are the the the, the typical four spices that that you would find. Ginger, garlic, shallots, and chili peppers. Fermentation is basically a harmless form of rot. Or, to put it more gently, it's a process in which microorganisms transform food by eating the sugars and producing acid. And with sauerkraut, or kimchi, for example, humans learned long ago how to harness the natural process of fermentation to create a healthy decomposition of food that's safe and delicious to eat. You probably know that wine, beer, and vinegar are products of fermentation, but so are foods you might not have thought of. Yogurt, cheese, coffee, bread, even chocolate. So here's the technical bit. Let's take vegetable fermentation. 
every piece of raw vegetable is covered in a jungle of bacteria. So any vegetable would eventually rot if they were just left out on the counter. These bacteria left to their own devices. But a cabbage in Sandor's kitchen will likely be chopped up and squeezed and salted and stuffed into a jar to ferment. Adding salt to this cabbage helps release the water inside it and creates a brine. This briny environment promotes the growth of the good bacteria, lactic acid bacteria among them. It eats the sugars and the vegetables and creates lactic acid. It's an organic acid like vinegar. It's what makes fermentation so effective. This acid makes the environment inhospitable to other bacteria, the ones that can make you sick. And flavor-wise, it eventually gives the vegetable this sour taste. The longer it sits, the more sour it gets. And even though societies have been fermenting their food for thousands of years, many people are still afraid to eat it. Today, for a lot of folks in the U.S., safe food means refrigerated food. Part of Sandor's mission is to reconnect us with this old method of making and eating food and to clear up this misunderstanding. I mean, fermentation is just so mysterious to people. Like, you know, I mean, everybody, like virtually every individual in virtually every part of the world eats and drinks products of fermentation every day. And yet we're very confused as to like what they are and how they're produced. And uh, uh, people project a lot of their generalized fear of bacteria onto the process. And I mean, I would say the most frequent question that I have encountered over the course of the years of doing this is, um, you know, people who are like chopping up cabbage and salting it and putting it in a jar or a crock or some other kind of vessel. And then they look at me and they say, how do I know that I'm going to get good bacteria growing on this and not bad bacteria that might, you know, make me sick or like kill one of my children or, or, or something like that. The, you know, fermentation is a strategy for safety. Um, you know, if every batch of sauerkraut was a roulette shoot, like sauerkraut would not have persisted as a, as a food. The USDA hasn't seen one case of a person getting sick from eating sauerkraut. There's still much to study about fermentation, but there is scientific evidence that some fermented food can be very good for you. Some people have found that it can settle an upset stomach, help with digestion, hypertension, and keep your immune system strong. But still, we live in an antibacterial culture. 75% of my job has been just like reassuring people, um, you know, that, they, that they're not going to get sick from what they eat, that, um, you know, if they get a little funky surface growth, that's pretty normal part of the process. They should just scrape that away, remove anything that's discolored, and enjoy what's underneath it. Trust your taste, he says. Growing up in New York City, apart from his love for pickles, there was no real sign that fermentation would eventually play such a big role in Sandor's life. He didn't dream of moving to the rural South either. He was a city kid, born and raised in Manhattan's Upper West Side, the eldest son of Lithuanian and Polish Jews. Sandor's first passion was not food, but politics. In high school and college, his causes were the anti-nuclear movement and Central American solidarity. After graduating from Brown University, he returned to New York and worked as a policy analyst in the Manhattan Bureau President's office. And then, in 1991, he found out he was HIV positive, and it made him rethink where he was heading. You know, I would say that I was looking to make a big change in my life. Um... I was having like a failure of imagination and couldn't picture what it was. He was looking for a more stress-free life, a way to stay healthy with HIV. On a trip to New Orleans with friends, he met some people who lived in a queer homesteading community off the grid in rural Tennessee. And this appealed to Sandor. 
land was really cheap compared to most other regions of the country. There's like relatively little, um, you know, kind of like regulation. Um, you know, it was easy for people to like build, you know, funky structures in the woods without going through regulatory processes. And in general, I would say that there's a, you know, real ethic here of like, you know, live and let live. After visiting the community in Tennessee a few times, he decided to move there and left New York City in 1993. And there was much for the city dweller to learn, changing the oil in his car, learning how to build, and growing and preserving his own food, of course. I mean, when I lived in New York, I would, you know, go to the store and buy, buy some sauerkraut. But, um, you know, down here when I had a garden, you know, I was such a naive city kid, it had never really occurred to me that in a garden, you know, all the cabbage would be ready at the same time or all the radishes would be ready at the same time. So, you know, it was the first year that I was living down here and gardening. And, you know, it's not like we had that many cabbages, but they were all ready. And, you know, it was like, what are we going to do with these cabbages? And I decided I'd better learn how to make sauerkraut. And I, I mean, I learned from the joy of cooking how to make sauerkraut. Sander was also inspired to ferment food for his health, especially after the HIV diagnosis. Effective drugs for HIV weren't available until several years later, and the early drugs made many people feel sick, so he was skeptical. He took another tack. He tried to lead the healthiest life he could. Physical activity, low stress, good water and food. He'd been on probiotic diets before, and he knew that fermented food could be good for your immune system. But in 1999, he had a health crisis and was hospitalized. You know, it was just kind of a scary moment of, you know, diagnostic tests and the, you know, possibility of having to do a fairly invasive surgery and... and uh, just earlier than that, on a beautiful afternoon in January, I had planted some radish seeds. Um, and then I got cold and I kind of forgot about them. And um, when I was in the hospital during this kind of scary time, I had a dream. And the dream was like about the radishes germinating. And it was almost like the, you know, the radishes came to me in the dream and reminded me that I had planted some radishes and told me that they were actually growing. And then when I got out of the hospital um, and I got home, I went and looked in the garden, and indeed, those radishes that I had planted a couple of weeks earlier had germinated. So, I don't know, you know, radishes saved my life, might be like a little bit, um, <laughs> might be like a little bit of an exaggeration, but I would say like at a very scary moment, the, you know, radishes offered me this very kind of life-affirming image, you know, having been um, like a, a friend to me at a really um, critical moment in my life. Fermentation has become his life's work, but it's an extension of his early political work. He sees fermentation as reconnecting us to other forms of life around us, taking responsibility for our shit literally and figuratively, as he puts it in his book, The Art of Fermentation. He sees fermentation as an engine of social change. And considering how seriously he takes it, he's not precious about it. He's the first one to say that Western medicine has helped him stay healthy, since he was hospitalized, he's taken antiretroviral and protease inhibitor drugs every day to temper the HIV in his body. But he says eating sauerkraut and other fermented foods keeps him healthy too. Fermentation is an ancient practice, and we don't really know how it all began, but any process that humans have used for so long is worthy of study, culturally and scientifically. Foods that withstand the test of time are foods that we ought to look at, learn from, think about the rituals around them. Elizabeth Engelhart is a professor of Southern Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I think when you sit down 
with your family, with your friends, with people who are going to help you peel those apples, making sauerkraut, putting up food, preserving food, you are saying to the people across the table from you that you are planning for the future, that you are thinking of your community going forward. And there's an optimism in that, she says. Sandor Katz lived in the homesteading community for nearly 20 years. Eventually, he left and bought his own house just a mile away. Today, he and his husband, Leopard, live mostly off the grid, with spring water and a couple of solar panels for electricity. We walk around to the side of his house and into his unfinished basement. Sandor nearly has to duck as we walk through the door. There are old jars and bottles scattered around, fermenting things, along with some unfinished and forgotten projects. But the biggest thing in this tiny basement is an enormous batch of sauerkraut. He started it with his students just the day before. It's a tall stainless steel vat that I could just barely put my arms around. This tank with a small spigot at its base was designed for another kind of fermentation, winemaking. But it's working just fine for kraut. Oh yeah, like a lot of liquid came out of that. That's amazing. Okay, so here's what I have to do. Sandor releases the pressure on the lid to pour some of the liquid back into the tank. Okay, I'm just going to spill this liquid back into it. You have to do the same thing if you pack your cabbage into a mason jar to ferment. It needs a burp to release the pressure that builds up from the microbial activity of fermentation. So it smells amazing. So this is just like, you know, basically daikon radishes and, um, and these um, china rose radishes and bok choy and some other greens and a few whole chili peppers and some garlic and salt. All from a friend's farm. The smell is strong and fresh, a salty seaside kind of smell. The tank is nearly as tall as my nose, the perfect height for a good whiff. The food that we produce, you know, like I eat it, I bring it to dinner parties and potlucks, and um, I, I sometimes, you know, drive around like Santa Claus with jars of miso or kimchi or whatever to give away to people. You know, and it, what goes around comes around. I mean, you know, pe- people share a lot of like wonderful um, homemade foods with me. And he's not the only one sharing kraut in Middle Tennessee. I mean, I would say every person who I've ever talked to who, like, grew up in an agrarian household that was multi-generational around here grew up with sauerkraut. Coming up, a matriarch chimes in. She shares her sauerkraut with her neighbors, too. They like it so much, sometimes it just disappears from her secret hiding place. And that's our donor music. New York is a popular destination for families during the holiday season. If your travel plans include ice skating beside the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree or shopping in the city, be sure to stop by Blue Smoke for a meal. The kitchen is led by Louisiana native Jean-Paul Bourgeois. A wide selection of whiskeys and bourbons is ready for your refreshment. For your meal, begin with an SFA favorite. Cornbread madeleines with sorghum butter. Move on to an entree, smoked prime rib, or perhaps pan-seared sea bass. Then indulge with dessert. As you enjoy the season and your meal, know that Blue Smoke is a proud supporter of this podcast. For that, and for their delicious banana cream pie, we thank them. Now back to Tennessee and our story of fermentation. 
Just across the county line from Sandor Katz is another kraut expert. She started making sauerkraut long before Sandor was even born. I'm Louise Frazier. I live in the Dry Creek Valley in DeKalb County. Well, I've been busy all my life. Louise was born in 1917, and she's still busy. She cans beans and pickles and turnip greens, makes jellies, cans meat for the winter. She attends church every week, and she writes a weekly column in the local paper, the Smithville Review. She writes about the local community, about food and preserving, about the seasons. She's only missed one week in 75 years. She's 99 years old. You know, back when I was born, they weren't particular about whether they put your birthday down or not. So they have me born two different days. The state has it June the 30th, which is okay with me. Now, Sandor Katz and Louise Frazier have never met, but they are kindred spirits when it comes to the fermenting of vegetables, sauerkraut in particular. Louise has been making kraut for as long as she can remember. Her father was a preacher, and her family moved around Tennessee quite a bit when she was a child, but they always had a garden, and there was always leftover cabbage that her mother would turn into kraut. In the bottom of the churn, I put a half a gallon of cabbage, cut up cabbage, even it around with your hand. Then I take a handful of cannon salt and sprinkle over that evenly. Then you layer it again, just like that, all the way till you get it to the top. Then you seal it off, and then I put a clean cloth on that. Four to six weeks, it's crowd. And when I was a girl, my mother made it that way. That's the only way she knew to make it. That was the first way. Louise made kraut like this for a long time. But over the years, she got a hold of modern conveniences like many people did. An electric stove, a refrigerator, a food processor, bottled vinegar. She adapted her methods to the new products and technologies, and also from sharing recipes with other kraut makers. Why make it harder than it has to be, she says. Along the way, she taught her seven children how to make sauerkraut. They would form a line around the dining room table, each one with a task. These days, she teaches one of her home care aides, Matilda Earl. All right. That's it now. I want a spoon. A small spoon or a large spoon? I want a tablespoon. You got it. Coming right up. Matilda has preserved all kinds of food with Louise. Jellies, salsa, canned turnip greens, and sauerkraut. No. This is a soup spoon. Let me get a tablespoon. 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 The right spoon for the job. Thank you. You are welcome. Matilda. I always thank her when she does right. (laughs) Everybody likes to be complimented. Matilda spreads an old towel over the dining room table to set up. She helps Louise over to her spot, and we begin. Here's the cup of. Have you already put the salt in? I have. There's one gallon of well water, one cup of dissolved canning salt, and now one cup of white vinegar okay, in a big pitcher. Okay, that's ready to go with the crowd. I mean, the cabbage. Matilda chops the cabbage, shreds it in the food processor, and dumps it into a bowl for Louise, the packer. I take this knife, 
and I mash it down good. I know how to pack. <laughs> I've done it this many times. I don't even question that. Louise is comfortable sitting at the table making kraut, but she's unsteady on her feet. She uses a walker to get around. She promised her husband she would never leave their house, and she hasn't. He died in 1993. Her eyes are bright behind her purple-rimmed glasses. She even has her own teeth, she tells me. While we talk and make kraut, she tells me about her houseplants, where to find the box of three-day pickles behind the fridge she canned earlier this year, the jars of the pink Roma apple jelly, and the canned turnip greens stacked high in a box behind her favorite Lazy Boy chair. There seem to be cans of preserved food all around the house. Louise picks up handfuls of the white shredded cabbage from a big metal bowl and jams them into a tall glass mason jar. Then she packs it down tight into the jar with a spoon. It tires her, but she keeps going, steadily packing five heads of cabbage, every last bit. Then she pours the water-vinegar-salt mixture over the cabbage, watches it bubble down into the air pockets left in the jar, and then pours some more. We clean and seal each jar. She'll leave the glass cans of kraut in her house for a week or so, until they start to smell a bit like kraut, that tangy, salty smell. Then she puts them under the floor, as she calls it. Around the side of her house is a small hatch door held shut with a cinder block. It's just big enough for a person to crawl through, and when you open the small door, the light hits about ten jars of sauerkraut. It's more of a crawl space than a cellar. Some jars are tipped over, some have rusty tops, but all contain beautiful white kraut. Louise says when the word gets out that she's made it, the jars just start disappearing. But she knows who it is. Neighbors, friends, family. It's part of the deal. Last year, Louise got sick and was in the hospital. Nearly died, she said. Now she takes a small handful of pills every day, and they keep her going. That and the sauerkraut, she tells me. And it's not just the healthy fermenting that keeps her strong, it's the making of it. When I left Tennessee, I tucked a jar of Louise's sauerkraut into my suitcase. She wouldn't let me leave without one. And since I don't have a crawl space under my house, I kept it in the next coolest place I could think of, the refrigerator. Louise had said to wait four to six weeks, so four weeks later, I tasted it with a friend. Farmer and science teacher Laura Williams has made her share of sauerkraut, and since I didn't have Louise around, I wanted someone with experience to bear witness. You think it's really going to explode? I've had it out of the fridge for 24 hours. We twist the mason jar open, expectantly. I, I did hear a little bit of a hiss, right? You can see bubbles. I think we should try it. I'm putting my finger in it. Okay. Louise told me about her son-in-law who likes to eat her kraut right out of the jar. So that's what we do. I mean, she didn't do anything. There's like no, there's a little salt. salt. Yeah, that's delicious. Louise's kraut was smooth and sour and delicious with a slight fermenty feeling fizz to it. The bacteria had worked their magic and turned that shredded cabbage into something new. All from a cabbage that in four weeks would have just been a pile of mush on the kitchen counter if left to its own devices. These extra cabbages and turnips and radishes don't go wasted in Sandor Katz and Louise Fraser's kitchens in Tennessee. Sauerkraut vats in the basement, jars and crocks and cans on the windowsills, and it's happening in other kitchens too, where not a bit of the harvest is wasted. Cucumbers pickled, cabbages chopped, and put up for the winter when fresh food is scarce. And just as important as the fermentation itself, Sandor and Louise are passing on what they've learned to 
people who want to maintain this old tradition of fermentation. You can find photos of Louise Fraser making her sauerkraut on our website. That's southernfoodways.org. While you're there, check out the photos of that big head of Napa cabbage kimchi from a crock in Sandor's kitchen. Music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and Gillicuddy. Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick. And our donor music is by Jazar. Thanks to Gravy's managing editor, Sarah Camp Milam. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first, 2017 will soon be here. Have you made any New Year's resolutions? SFA has a suggestion. Resolve to join us at the table by becoming a member. Membership dollars support our work, including this podcast. They also fund oral history projects and films, the SFA book series, and our sister publication, The Gravy Quarterly, which features original writing that shares stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. Visit southernfoodways.org to become a member online. It's a resolution you will feel good about. Coming up next time on Gravy. Many of the stories we hear and tell about food are positive, about how food brings us together. But some personal stories about food are not so sweet. After a few bites, I began to feel guilt. A knot formed in my throat. The emotional life of eating. That's next time. You're listening to Gravy. I'm Sarah Reynolds for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your day, please remember... Make cornbread, not war.